Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 25 of The Pick List. Are you having a good week? Hello, Laura. Yes, I'm having a very good week. Thank you. Uh, Lots of training and lots of coaching for me again this week, spending lots of time uh, talking to people about how to improve their writing and storytelling skills, which has been lots of fun. What have you been up to? Yeah, good week, busy week. I'm working on a a, a big project actually for a food processor, um, looking at their marketing strategy uh, over the next couple of weeks. So yeah, it's keeping me out of mischief on the run up to Christmas. Very good. We've got a fantastic show this week, haven't we? We have indeed. We're joined by Simon Day. Simon is head of marketing at Winterbotham Derby. Simon's got lots of interesting uh, perspective on the food industry, a really broad set of experience um, across a a number of, of quite interesting categories as well. And he brought some fascinating articles for us to discuss. Should we start the show? Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to it's good to be here. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners how you're connected to food and grocery? So I'm Simon Day. I'm on the leadership team of a business called Winterbotham Derby. Um, Winterbotham Derby is has kind of three main prongs to the business. First is continental meat, so that's things like salami. Um, and parma ham, chorizo, those kind of products. Um, the second is olives, we're the UK's biggest supplier of olives. Um, and then the third, which has grown very rapidly recently, is plant-based, and we're, we, we've become a major player in, in, um, in plant-based. Brilliant. And you've brought a very interesting and diverse selection of articles for us to discuss as well. Uh, why don't you tell us about your first pick for us? Sure. So the first um, article, it's um, it's about Camden Town Brewery and um, the integration of Camden Town Brewery into uh, AB InBev. It's an article from the grocer, um, Edward Devlin's the um, the author of the article, and the I guess the it really lays out some of the um, the pros of of being integrated, being acquired by a bigger business being integrated into a bigger business and addresses some of the controversy that that surrounds that. So um, some of the pros that that um, the article highlights are around the buying power um, of AB InBev that uh, they, they Camden obviously has the opportunity to benefit from, the distribution network um, that they, they have, the CapEx, I think they made a, a 30 million pound um, site investment, which is obviously a huge, huge investment. Um, logistics expertise and then and then also which I found really interesting this idea of freeing up the founders um, and and the leaders of the of the business to concentrate on the some of the things that that they're good at obviously also some cons and um, I think they highlight the danger of you know will this mean that 
Um, I mean, Camden's been acquired for a few years now, but this kind of full integration, will that mean that they lose some of the independent energy that, that the brewery had? Um, and he cites the example of Meantime, I think, acquired by Asahi and uh, maybe has, has lost its way a little bit since then. So the, the reason I chose, chose the article, I guess, um, I speak all the time with brand founders and, um, and food business founders. And oftentimes I find that um, they're really struggling. And, uh, but I think, you know, this kind of founder led business it is, is really held up as the, the gold standard a, a little bit, you know, there's a huge amount of buzz about founder led businesses and people kind of aspire to be founders. Um, but probably not enough recognition of how difficult it is and also how difficult that tipping point is when businesses want to scale up, you know, when they've kind of proven their market, they're successful, but they really want to take the step to, to, to the next level. And I think that probably isn't, um, discussed enough. Um, personally, I, I feel like, um, businesses being acquired at that stage or um, having other arrangements with with larger businesses often is an absolute godsend for founders um, and does really free them up to do the things that they're they're great at and you know can be a real success story and obviously there's there's successes and failures uh, examples in the market and the other thing i found uh, kind of interesting is um just this reaction that maybe it's selling out to to do that um, and I think that's really pertinent at the moment. I mean, we're involved in plant-based a, a lot. And I, somebody uh, said something to me the other day, which I thought was really insightful, which was that plant-based founders seem to tend to um, dislike money. Um, and, you know, plant-based is obviously an unusually purpose-driven area of, of food. Um, and there can be that kind of inherent dislike of a business being really successful, um, uh, profitable or um, successful financially. And I think that's going to be really interesting in plant-based to see, like, does that hold the sector back in some ways? Or will people embrace that scale up and the money that flows into the sector to enable that to happen? And I, I love the article and it was a, a great one to bring to the show and, it, and it's really interesting, your, your comments there. And what I thought of was about authenticity and can a brand remain authentic if it becomes part of a bigger FMCG company? And as, as you're mentioning in the article, there was some frustration from some of the B2B customers of Camden that, that part of a, a, a becoming part of a bigger group. And you think of the likes of, I don't know, Ben and Jerry's coming into the Unilever business and you mentioning there about plant-based do you have you seen any businesses that have done well at that and can you stay authentic or and actually do consumers really care that they may be owned by a, a massive conglomerate behind and this small founder that used to set it up and has that passion may well still be part of a board but not really the the driving force behind it anymore yeah i mean um i, I think most consumers don't care i think you know it's always kind of overdone isn't it often it it tends to be a big social media storm, but when people are standing in front of a fixture in a supermarket, you know, are these thoughts really going through their head? I mean, you know, I'm a marketing 
uh, specialist and I guess I know how difficult it is to put any thought in in somebody's head that they retain when they're at a fixture so unless they really hear that story a lot then um, I think it's unusual for it to trip into their um, buying behavior even if it's quite a big one-off story at the time so yeah I'd say it was kind of overstated I think the biggest danger for me is the is that energy and that focus around a brand um and whether that gets diluted and i think that that tends to be the, the the thing to watch out for you know are they still brave do they still make brave decisions and clear decisions when they're part of a bigger business so in my view that that tends to be the biggest thing to, to watch out for and that really depends on the leadership of the of the bigger business in my opinion it's so interesting what you were saying about the plant-based category in particular and that observation that that some plant-based founders uh, don't seem to like that much money. It's a sort of, it's a split, isn't it? Because they clearly are some very well-invested plant-based businesses. You know, <laughs> yeah. You're thinking about Beyond Meat or Impossible. I think they, they're quite comfortable with they money. They love money. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think I, I, I do wonder whether some of that, you know, for the smaller guys, for the, for the startups, because there is a... A, a narrative isn't there particularly in plant-based that you now do have a lot of the really big fmcg giants moving into plant-based and the whole discussion around you know is this just another way to do ultra processed foods but with a sort of slight you know kind of health and, and and ethics halo i wonder whether that massively increases the pressure on some of the smaller businesses to show that they're different, that to show that they're not part of a, a big conglomerate or a big FMCG name, and whether that perhaps is, it explains why there is that um, that difficulty that they sometimes experience with scaling up and, and being comfortable at seeking that scale as well. Do you do you see that as, as potentially being a, a factor? That's a really interesting point about differentiating, and um, yeah, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure there is that an element of that um but i think there is something also inherent about how much control you have over a business so just founders tend to be real control freaks don't they and um it, relinquishing that bit by bit is is quite difficult and at scale up stage you generally have to loosen the reins a, a little bit in in some way so um yeah i think that's still a challenge Julia, what's your first pick this week? So my first pick this week is from Food Navigator, and it's an article titled Whole Foods Reveals Top 10 Food Trends for 2021. Um, it is, as you might have guessed from that title, all about the annual Whole Foods Food Trends Forecast. We are in forecasting and predictions season, of course. Uh, there are lots of trend reports coming out at the moment, but I do always like to see what Whole Foods have to say because I think they have an interesting take on trends and they do these forecasts really well as well. Plus, of course, this is a really challenging year for trends forecasting because who knows what's going to happen over the coming months and how that will affect shopper behaviour. So think it's a particularly interesting time to look at trends forecasts this year to see how different forecasters and different organizations are grappling with that challenge and to what extent the pandemic features in their forecasts. So what does Whole Foods predict for 2021? I'm not going to run through all 10 of, uh, of the trends here but I do want to highlight three that stood out to me in particular. One of those is epic breakfast every day 
Um, and this is based on more people working from home, of course, uh, not commuting, and therefore having more time to spend on that first meal of the day. And I thought this was an interesting angle because we've seen a lot of analysis around how working from home has changed lunch. In fact, we'll talk about uh, that a little later in one of the other articles. But I think there's a real opportunity around breakfast as well that perhaps hasn't been as explored because, you know, that those sort of wider trends around people experimenting a little bit more in the kitchen, being more willing to cook, that obviously also plays out at breakfast time. And Whole Foods are saying that there's a whole range of NPD now coming out that is trying to target this new interest in more elaborate weekday breakfast options. Um, egg products, uh, but also egg alternatives to, to cater to that plant-based trend, products such as waffles and, and pancakes. And what I really like about trends like this particular breakfast trend, so I think when you have trends that focus on an occasion like breakfast, it's potentially very inclusive. It's a trend that can uh, speak to all sorts of different brands, different retailers, different suppliers, you know, whether it's plant-based or not, whether you're more premium or not, whether you're chilled, ambient or frozen. Uh, you know, some of food trends can be quite specific to an ingredient or a type of food. This really feels like there's a lot of scope for lots of people and lots of companies uh, to, to do something with. The second trend I thought was really interesting here is uh, basics on fire, uh, which essentially involves people upgrading staples such as dried pasta, tinned tomatoes, etc., to more premium versions. And again, that's partly informed by this sort of increased uh, interest in cooking, but also partly by a desire for small everyday luxuries. And again, I really like this trend because it feels very specific to the moment we're living in right now, but also it has that breadth. It has that potential to include lots of different categories, lots of different brands. And I think it's such an interesting challenge as well, because there's so many categories that have struggled uh, with this over the years. You know, if, where you are a premium version of a product or ingredient that's perceived as quite basic. Uh, so things like dried pasta and tomatoes, but even things like eggs and milk and various meat products, I think they've all faced that struggle that conveying that extra value to the consumer is really rather tricky at times. Um, so I'll be watching with great interest to see if this basics on fire trend is something that is going to gain traction, because again, I think it has the potential to benefit lots of uh, products, lots of different categories. And the third trend that caught my eye was the mighty chickpea. Um, and what Whole Foods are saying is uh, they're describing chickpeas as rich in fiber and plant-based protein. Chickpeas are the new cauliflower, popping up in products like chickpea tofu, chickpea flour, and even chickpea cereal. I'm definitely finding when I'm talking to people in plant-based, and I'll be really interested in your perspective on this, Simon, that they are quite excited about chickpeas. I also feel like they've been excited about chickpeas for quite some time. So I'm intrigued that this is something that Whole Foods are choosing to highlight right now. So perhaps they're seeing lots of NPD activity in the in the background that um, is going to start coming, coming to market over the coming months. But yeah, really interesting selection of, of trends. I think the other seven are all worth looking at as well, because I think Whole Foods really do know how to present these trends in an engaging way. They always have great na uh, names for them, which I think is a, is a big part of how they sell these forecasts. Um, and a final observation that I thought was really interesting is that you can actually buy products that fit in with each of these trends through a specially curated product selection on Amazon as well. 
I think it's only on the Amazon.com site, so uh, the US business. But again, I think it's a it's a clever little idea that just brings some of these forecasts to life, that you're not just talking about uh, what, what you expect to be big, but you're also then actually curating a little product selection so people can, can try some of these trends for themselves as well. Simon, what did you make of it and which trends caught your eye in particular? So I always love these. I love I love trend season and I, I love it when trends come out. I think we're a business that's quite kind of um, uh, tends to try and jump on some of these things um, before they become uh, mainstream. And so uh, we're always interested in them. Um, yeah, I really liked the idea of the curator range that you just mentioned at the end there uh, on Amazon and bringing that bringing that to life. I think there's a lot of um, value in doing that. I mean, it's almost like a fashion collection, isn't it? Of kind of this season's um, selection, and and yeah, I did like that. I, I always laugh at some Whole Foods uh, things. I think they say like twists on classics, and one of them, one of them was applewood smoked salt. I think that was uh, that was one of them. And I thought I I I'm willing to bet that applewood smoked salt is not a big trend in uh, 2021, but uh, I, I'm willing to be proven wrong. Um, but yeah, in terms of the, the other areas you highlighted, um, the chickpeas one made me laugh because I think I was even quoted an article written by yourself, <laughs> Delia, saying that um, plant-based food isn't all, um, isn't all chickpeas. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, but at the same time, I've got a packet of cheeky peas in my, um, I don't know if you've seen that brand in my, my cupboard, which I, I like to snack on. So yeah, I do like chickpeas sometimes. <laughs> Um, in terms of the basics on fire, uh, really interesting. I, I, I thought, I, and I, you know, I'm particularly interested in those products maybe that people have been put off from in the past because they've tried poor versions of. You know, I think pasta and tomatoes kind of are a, are part of our all of our lives, um, but things like beans and pulses um, is an interesting area where people may have tried those products in the past, found them tasteless, or you know not known how to prepare them or or they haven't been presented to them in a tasty way and you know they'll struggle to go back to those products um so if there's a real way of elevating those products you know i think there is potential for them to become um more you know more well liked i guess the challenge is so much about price perception and value perception there isn't it where if you're used to paying a pound for your tin of beans and then there's some, but they taste terrible. And then there's some absolutely delicious beans, um, but it's, you know, three pounds a tin or something. Is is anyone even going to pick that off the shelf or, or, or off the internet? I don't know. But yeah, some interesting stuff in there, I thought. For me, uh, it was interesting. I was waiting to see which three you picked. Uh, obviously, read the ten. And for me, the epic breakfast every day was the was the biggie in there. So uh, I wasn't surprised you've picked that. And I just think for for the uh, egg market, that's just a, an absolute boom, isn't it? And how they're seeing uh, so much growth, particularly over the the last couple of years, and and COVID would have fueled that even more. And it'll be interesting to see if that. And I know we're going to talk about lunch occasions in a moment, but how breakfast will that move to later in the day, potentially, if you're working at home and you maybe start earlier at your desk or, or whatever it may be. And then um, and then you've got, I don't know, an 11 o'clock gap in your day. You've got the opportunity to uh, to, to make yourself some uh, scrambled egg on toast and then miss out lunch. So it's uh, yeah, I think it'll change that that standard structure of, of eating that we've had in the past. Laura, what's your first pick? 
Uh, my first pick's from the grocer and it's consumers Christmas shopping earlier and planning smaller gatherings. Um, and this was written just before actually we had the guidelines this week of what Christmas was going to look like and the... Uh, and the UK government, along with the devolved nations, deciding how many people or how many households can come together. And as we know, we're now uh, being advised between the 23rd and 27th, we can have up to three households in a bubble. And I like some press are calling it a bauble instead of a, a bubble. Uh, but what this uh, article does, it gives us a bit of insight to what the, the retailers are, are feeling in the run up to Christmas and, and what uh, shoppers are, are looking at. So um, with, there's a few t- uh, takeouts and Asda are, are, are saying that they're seeing a major shift to lockdown proof festive essentials as consumers are starting preparations earlier than previous years and supermarkets uh, are experiencing across the, the, the whole landscape. In particular, frozen turkey crowns, which uh, typically serve up to three to four people, have incre- increased 230% year on year, which is... Uh, is massive. Don't need to say that. And uh, uh, Roger uh, Burnley, CEO of Asda, is talking about Christmas uh, being very different, and it's no surprise there. His quote is saying, uh, "We've already seen a marked shift in buying patterns, with customers stocking up their freezers and cupboards with uh, festive essentials earlier than ever before, which suggests they're getting used to expecting the unexpected and preparing to enjoy themselves as much as possible." And there's a theme through the article. Really, people are, are shifting on to frozen because they know it's going to be there and they don't need to worry about maybe something fresh that they would have ordered in previous years and and that risk that uh, it might not be on the shelf. Uh, Sainsbury's are um, quoted in the article and they're expecting more consumers to uh, celebrate in smaller groups, no surprise, and then again selling smaller turkey crowns and meat joints to cater for this. Um, I also like uh, Morrison's are mentioned and the fact that they're doing deals on spirits uh, and they're seeing a significant uplift in that because not only people are maybe buying it for themselves but buying it as gifts and that's something that sprung to mind as I've been out of some of the retailers over the last couple of weeks whilst we're in lockdown that there's more fixture space to, to gifting and as I guess other retailers are closed will people be putting other items in the basket from a supermarket as a gift Interestingly, my my local Sainsbury's has an extra aisle for toys this year than it's ever had before. So I think how tempting that is, you think, I'm just going to buy it now and not worry about when the high street retailer that normally sells those products will be back open. Uh, And then there's a little uh, bit of information from Tesco that's saying that it's expected the UK to continue to embrace the trend of uh, scratch cooking. And their research is saying 85% of shoppers plan to cook at least part of their Christmas dinner from scratch, which did make me think, I wonder what the definition of scratch is. Uh, (laughs) If it's not a small element of it being scratch, uh, is it it all coming out of a tin? I'm I'm not sure. And then finally, um, Christmas food and drinks pre-orders were up 200% compared to the previous year waitress are reporting so what's your vibe simon you know you're speaking to industry all the time are you seeing that the more and more uh shoppers are, are being prepared and, and what are the stockpiling on yeah I, I i don't think we've really seen like massive evidence of stockpiling but definitely that things have you know retailers are obviously expecting things to start earlier and um there is some evidence of that already. Definitely the scratch cooking side, you know, in both, in all the lockdowns, we've um, we've seen uh, in terms of our sales and the categories we're involved with, definitely those ingredients lines have, have really, really boomed. And especially, I think, ingredients that are quite versatile, where people can think of kind of five different dishes they could 
could use them in. Um, those products have done really, really well. And that's, I guess, linked to some of the points you're making about um, frozen as well. And it? it's this idea of kind of flexibility that if something doesn't happen or doesn't quite go as planned, then people can use it in, in different ways. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure that side of it will continue. And then the other thing that we've seen is actually premium tier products um, doing really well in lockdown um, for us. And that's something we've also seen even in recessionary periods in the past, um, even going back to 2008. And I think that kind of willingness to treat yourself and still treating yourself at home is still a lot cheaper than eating a restaurant meal out, obviously, which people haven't been able to do. So for those people who are able to, to spend that money, um, then treating, I'm sure will, treating, gifting, you know, it's one of the few things people can spend money on at the moment, isn't it, food? So, and Christmas is obviously the time to really hyperindulge. So, yeah, I feel like that that will be a trend again this Christmas. And and you'll be pleased to hear that I finally sorted my Christmas food shopping. That's been a running theme through uh, the past few few episodes. One thing that did strike me, and I looked at a number of retailers before we placed our orders. You know, as Laura says, we've heard so much about these smaller gatherings and smaller occasions. We've talked about M&S and their minimus um, forecast. I did not find that massively reflected in the ranges. And, and I wonder whether that's just one of those things that that the that insight came too late and, and too much of those ranges had been locked in already. But I really didn't find that it was particularly easy to uh, shop and pre-order Christmas, you know, food options, festive food options that really reflected a, a smaller gathering. I think you are still getting stuck with some fairly sizable uh, portion sizes uh, most of the time. So I, certainly my, my personal impression is that there's perhaps a little bit of a disconnect um, around what we think people are potentially looking for and then what, what those ranges uh, cater towards. Um, based on the conversations and the many articles that we've discussed here, I think I would have expected that to be reflected a little bit more in, in some of the ranging. So are you telling us rather than a pizza for your Christmas dinner, you've got a turkey that's going to feed 24 people? <laughs> that's basically that's basically where I'm at now, yes. Yeah, we've gone from one extreme to the other, but uh, at least it's not pizza for Christmas this year. So that's uh, that has to count as an achievement. <laughs> it's those seasonal um, lines. Uh, I always feel, I mean, we're in chilled food and for chilled food suppliers, it, it you know, it is always difficult to... Um, to innovate for a narrow seasonal um, option and and you know maybe it's a it'll be a real benefit actually to to chilled suppliers this year that it's it is the kind of smaller regular party food suitable items that just see a big uplift rather than the big Christmas specials like you're saying that's that serve more people I think that's been a slight pattern over the last few years anyway and as with most things um, COVID related, it kind of accelerates existing uh, trends to a certain extent, doesn't it? Absolutely. Simon, what's your second pick for us? Uh, so it might be a slightly unusual um, second article, this one, but um, the title is American Expat Reveals the Six Things That Make the UK Better Than the US um, in a hilarious TikTok video, including Greg's, B&M and Indian food. So um, this is in, on the Mail Online, um, I, I think. Um, yeah, and it, aside from describing it as a hilarious TikTok video, which always 
always kind of reduces the impact of any comedy in the video you subsequently watch, I find. But um, uh, it's quite an amusing watch, I think. So the TikTok um, star is Mr. Miami UK. Um, I believe his, his, his name is Nick Alexander, his real name. And this uh, Nick, he's moved from Florida to, um, to Wolverhampton, the classic, classic move that everybody makes um, in order to, to study. And um, he kind of, uh, his TikTok content is a lot about how he finds life in the UK. He's a super positive guy, really engaging. Um, and there are some kind of quite, quite surprising um, things that he loves about the UK. So in this particular video uh, the f and the food relevance of this is that um, he, he picks out yum yums from uh, Greg's um, Ribena, um, which I you know personally feel tastes doesn't taste as good as it used to in my in my youth but um still still very passable um and he's he's very taken with the fact that ribena comes in so many different formats and also surprisingly confused about what blackcurrant is so um i think maybe blackcurrant isn't as big in the us as it as it is in the uk um i think i once saw a stat that 90 something percent of blackcurrants grown in the uk were were, were made into ribena but Someone might be able to correct me on that. Um, and then he, he throws in a bonus after his um, six things. Uh, there's a seventh thing, which is uh, Indian food in a quite kind of um, a sweeping way. Um, so his, that video has a million views, uh, something like 200,000 likes. He, he has about 100,000 um, followers. And in his other video content, he also looks at fish and chips, um, Nando's, he loves olives, so that obviously endeared him to me, um, the honours at Nando. Um, and the reason I chose the article is that um, I guess I, I find it quite an interesting dynamic of how people love to hear their experiences almost validated by an outsider. Um, and some things that maybe we'd be disparaging about amongst ourselves potentially or um, are overlooked just through familiarity. Uh, when somebody external has a look at that and, and praises it, it kind of makes us reassess um, things that we're familiar with ourselves. So, and I guess it's, it's the reverse, isn't it, of we're allowed to diss our own stuff, but you're not allowed to if you're an outsider, that kind of mentality. So it's kind of the reverse of that. And, and food in particular is something obviously so close to people's uh, hearts and so, so much part of their life that having an outsider's perspective on food you eat regularly or you've grown up with is always interesting. And then the second reason I chose it, I guess, was because um, it highlights this idea of TikTok as a platform for, for food discussion and food businesses. And my I guess my take on that is that food businesses are quite slow generally to adopt some of these um, channels and probably underestimate the impact that, uh, that a platform like TikTok uh, can have. Um, you know, we're quite active on TikTok and I have a friend who, who started a, a food-based TikTok account in September uh, and had 4 million views in, in, in the first month with no paid traffic at all you know TikTok's uh, really about the content you produce uh, rather than paying for for viewers so 
There are some food businesses on TikTok, but very few actually. Um, M&S is a surprising one. Um, it's dominated by Percy Pig uh, content, but um, so yeah, it feels like a real kind of untapped opportunity for, for food businesses. The uh, TikTok point is absolutely phenomenal, as you say that the and we've chatted about it before um, on our episodes. That it's so important, isn't it, for food businesses to have a marketing team that understand where your consumer is. And sometimes we are traditional, we aren't fast paced, and you know, not using platforms like TikTok, it, it can re- majorly disadvantage you. So to show that, and your, your example there of a. Uh, uh, four million views from a, a, a connection of yours uh, from September is just phenomenal. So yeah, it, it all just organically grown. So yeah, it's it's inspiring. What I really thought about when I had a look at this um, article was what were the foods that stood out to me when I moved to the UK about twenty years ago? Um, and actually, Ribena's in there. I do. I, I, I have a yeah. I have a lot of time for Ribena. I I, <laughs> I think it's like. It's, very refreshing um and there wasn't anything like that um when when i grew up in in germany so yeah i i, I could definitely relate to um having ribena on there i think milk um is i'm definitely someone now who really likes british milk um because con- lots of continental markets are a bit more uht driven still they certainly were when i um when i left germany so i found the quality of british fresh british milk was uh, was something that um that stood out to me quite a lot um but uh, yeah there always there always things that that you still don't that, that i still don't get i will never understand crisps and this nation's obsession with crisps um <laughs> but even even 20 years down the line but I, I loved what you were saying, Simon, about just the importance of platforms like TikTok. And I'd love to know what, what kind of, so you say you are, as Winterbotham are on, on TikTok, or, or what exactly are you doing on TikTok to engage that audience? I mean, I'm still getting over the fact that you don't like crisps, but that's a bit... <laughs> I know. Um, I wasn't going to mention it, but I'm glad you have. Yeah, so we have a few... Um, a few brands, um, uh, Unearthed, uh, Fadas, and and then we have a plant-based brand called um, Squeaky Bean, and that Squeaky Bean's been our biggest kind of play on um, on TikTok. So it's um, plant-based content, um, and yeah, food food content. But you know, we have we have videos with half a million views as well, which are about making paninis with um, plant-based nuggets, and sometimes it's surprising or controversial you know videos strange food mashups and things that that get a lot of views and get people people talking um but it's been yeah really refreshing at how how big an audience you can reach how quickly and organically without without paying and the other thing i think is it sharpens you up because on a lot of these platforms you don't have to think that long before you post the content you know, you shouldn't think too long. You, know, you do put effort into creating content, but it doesn't have to be super polished. And, you know, for marketing teams that are used to planning things out, spending weeks creating content and so on, you know, I think social is a lot more about um, the same guy, actually, that I mentioned, James Brooks. He um, he posted something recently, a survey on LinkedIn, which was around, which said, could you post uh, 10 items of social content in a day? And um, the the response came back f- from his followers of kind of twenty percent 
said uh, yes, they could, but 80% said no, no, they couldn't. And then he did a follow-up question, which was, should you post uh, 10 pieces of content in a day? And, and the split was pretty much the same. Like people were saying, um, yes, 20%, but 80% were saying, saying no. And I, it's his argument, which I would subscribe to is actually in this age of social marketing, you probably should be posting 10 pieces of content a day and you should stop thinking so hard about every bit of content you post and just post. And the more you post, the more you see what people react to, the more you learn from your audience's reaction and all the time you're iterating and um, improving what you post. And really that's the way, uh, the way to play it on social now. And I think, and TikTok, it forces you to do that almost. And then that can flow back into the rest of your marketing activity, making you much kind of quicker to react. It's interesting. And we're just listening to you there. Um, I think there was a um a US onion grower, possibly Canadian um onion grower, who just went viral on TikTok as well. And all he did was basically take um people behind the scenes, show show the warehouse, show where the, the onions were being harvested, um, or stored rather, and and then answer questions. Um, and they it just showed that there was such an appetite to kind of just understand some basic facts about how food has grown and where it comes from and he has just an incredibly engaging way to just answer those questions you know why do onions get stored or what does it look like and what are the different varieties and it just makes me think that particularly from a producer point of view where some where you maybe don't have a brand that allows you to uh, to communicate directly with with consumers there are those opportunities to do storytelling around food production and um, reach a new audience that has that appetite for understanding um, how, how you know how their food is produced and where it comes from as well. I think that's a really great point I think and in you know uh, for example uh, people talk about like transparency being important but you know I, I don't think you can't only get so much of transparency across on a pack where it says you know this was um grown by a farmer in devon or or whatever you know and there's a bit of story about the producer or something on the pack but it's very limited really um but yeah brilliant chance for some of the untold stories to get told and for and for people at different places in the in the value chain of the food industry and especially for farmers to talk about what they do and 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 why they do what they do yeah i agree Julia, what's your second pick? So my second pick this week is from Quartz, and it's an article titled The Happy Future of the Sad Desk Lunch. Um, this is part of a whole series of articles that Quartz are doing on how the pandemic has changed our food habits. And this one, as the title suggests, focuses specifically on lunch. Um, it's quite an interesting format. It's essentially an interview with two food culture experts. There's Megan Elias, who's a cultural historian at Boston University, and Laura Shapiro, who's a culinary historian. Um, and they are being interviewed and talk about what's happened to our lunch habits during COVID and what all this means for our lunch time habits from now on. Um, and, and the point they make is that lunch has been shaped so heavily by our work and office culture for obvious reasons. It happens in the middle of the working day for most of us, and so it's heavily influenced and shaped by how and where we work and what those expectations are um, at work that we need to fit in with. 
And so they give some really interesting background and the history of the working lunch, the power lunch gets a mention as well. Um, But what they both feel is happening with the pandemic is a, a slowing down of lunch eating it more within the home, of course, and also, again, more cooking from scratch, some of those key trends that that we've seen throughout the pandemic and that we've talked about already. And they, I think, are both pretty confident from what they're saying that those are trends that are going to stay with us post-pandemic as well, because the benefits are pretty compelling once you've experienced them. And it's not just about more choice or enjoying cooking, but it's also financial. You know, if you are preparing lunch at home, it's likely to be cheaper than if you go out and and grab something to go. And that's obviously going to be a more important consideration as, you know, we're facing a a really challenging um, and difficult uh, economic climate as well. I also just think from personal experience, once you're out of that office environment where there's an expectation that you're eating your, your lunch at your desk in many cases, and you've rediscovered the benefits of having a proper lunch break and maybe taking a little bit more time around your lunch, I think people are also going to really want to hold on to some of that. Um, In terms of the actual lunch within the work environment, um, this interview um, talks a lot about how there will be a certain proportion of people who do really miss being at work and who miss being with colleagues and miss getting lunch with colleagues. So the the lunch, the, the workplace lunch or the work lunch is not going to be uh, a thing of the past. People will want those experiences again, especially in the immediate wake of the pandemic. But they do think that lunch food providers, whether it's employers or food to go chains, they are going to be much more cautious following the pandemic because they've experienced just how quickly that sector got shut down. So the expectation is that we're going to see more temporary lunch providers and lunch solutions. So a food truck that comes round to different workplaces or offices, rather than the kind of heavy investment that's needed to run a workplace cafeteria or a canteen, for example. Um, We've also previously talked about um, some of the sort of unattended retail concepts, uh, vending concepts that could potentially play a role here as well. But uh, there there seems to be a sense that um, flexibility, agility, these more temporary solutions um, are, are going to be what, what people are going to be interested in and, and they're, they're perhaps going to be a little bit gun shy around anything that requires really, really heavy investment. Simon, what did you make of that and, and what are your expectations around how the pandemic is going to be changing lunchtime habits beyond the actual sort of lockdown experience? Um, well, as a business and, and myself, with kind of one foot in in the UK and one foot firmly in um, in Europe, uh, in mainland Europe, and and particularly for us in Spain and Italy, you know, we've always kind of seen that um, contrast, you know, when we're at production sites and factories in in Spain and Italy, and you know, oftentimes people will sit down to have lunch together, um, and it is quite a different experience to um, to a UK experience. So. Um, yeah, I'm all in favour of the slower lunch. I think my personal experience is I also need lots of things that I can eat in a dignified manner whilst on a Zoom call. Um, so that sometimes limits my my lunch options. But um, I agree with the the points about um, flexibility, and I think that's really interesting that future providers, you know, things like food trucks might spring up. And actually, 
you know, that's to me a big silver lining where those kind of operators don't have to stock things that they know will sell in very high volumes. You know, they're, they're not kind of constrained by very high business rates and, um, and fixed premises and so on. So um, that's often where a lot of innovation comes from. You know, we're massively missing the, the sources of inspiration that we get from, from eating out at the moment. That's a huge part of where a lot of our inspiration comes from. Um, but I can see that coming back with those, with those kind of operators. Um, you know, hope, obviously in cities, you, you tend to have more of those options, um, but maybe even on industrial estates or business parks, and other places like that, those those operators may may proliferate, and that brings imaginative food with it. I think. Laura, what's your second pick for us? My second pick this week is from Nam News, and it's Morrison's Unveils latest market kitchen outlet. So this is their third concept store of their market kitchen, um, and it's in um, Birmingham. The other two stores which they launched last year is London and uh, Manchester. Um, and it's really them building their strategy to grow untapped demand for the food to go and takeaway sector. And it's really interesting because it's offering both breakfast, lunch, which we've, we've covered in today's show, and also evening meals, freshly prepared, made to order by a chef. And it's bringing this whole theatre piece to retail, which uh, I know we do talk about regularly. And you can choose from a selection of foods, wraps, curries, roast chicken, and it's very branded soup kitchen, milkshake and waffle. Waffle, waffle shack and brew and when you're looking at some of the photos in the article as well um, it feels very much like a food hall that you would find at a, at a shopping mall rather than at a supermarket uh, customers can choose to watch their meal being made to order or can pick up um, their um, ready-made uh, meals or they can actually order via delivery as well um, and uh, uh, Hannah Mums from uh, Morrison's Head of Market Kitchen is saying uh, the chefs use our fresh market kitchen's ingredients to create uh, delicious seasonal meals for customers that are made to order. And she says that this means customers can, can get that food as well as uh, picking up their groceries at the same time. And then the article also goes on to say that, that Morrison's are planning to uh, roll out more of these uh, stores to high footfall areas in the UK. One of the reasons I picked this, I'm really interested that we've seen a trend over the last couple of years of uh, retailers getting more and more into the food service market and their share of food service for, for, uh, through their cafes has grown tremendously. And we know the... Um, uh, Market Street concept for Morrison's has worked well when other retailers are, are stripping out counters and this Market Kitchen concept sort of is is supercharging food service at retail and and coupling that with with takeaway options too. And I was just really intrigued. Is this a massive sea change? Do we think? And I know this is only three stores, uh, concept stores. And is this a, an angle where you know these big retailers that have space that maybe counters was, were in before that they can actually start using them as both kitchens and arguably dark kitchens and something that you know food service operators should be starting to worry about because these massive players are getting involved or is this something niche that you know comes around cyclically that that, that players have a go at and then drop out of it out of again because it's not their area of expertise what do you think simon is this a game changer or is this is this something that that's nice to look at but a slow burn um i think it's a game changer and you know uh, i think you've talked about counters 
probably on this podcast um, previously, and and you know, Fred, your your, your article about counters as well. But um, you, you know, obviously, counters have been on the decline for for a long, long time. And I, I agree with anyone that says that just stop thinking about it as deli counters and start thinking about about it as space in store. So in in some cases, a, you know, a counter, traditional counter might be the best use of that space in some stores, in some locations. And if it's, you know, sufficiently well run and um, with a with a good enough selection, but in a lot of other stores, different uses might be appropriate. And it, yeah, I, you know, I thought it was really impressive looking um, setup. It feels like the kind of setup that would work best in a city, you know, city centre, big city centre locations, obviously, and you can't see it going out to, you know, a huge number of stores. But that isn't to say that as, you know, smaller versions or different versions or just completely different uses of the space couldn't happen in in uh, other stores. I think it's a, a bit about retailers really knowing that their locality and the and and the people that walk through the through the doors of their store and and what those people would be interested in and being a bit flexible and having these store clusters or you know being really targeted about the offer in different areas and it in answer to your point about will they kind of retreat because this isn't their area of expertise i think it's all about outsourcing there and you know, it's space in store that effectively retailers can sell to concessions that come in where it really is their area of expertise. And some of those would be food service operators, but also in areas that retailers um, might struggle a little bit more to have credibility. Um, I'm thinking of things like health, um, you know, things like uh, protein, um, delivery and you know where businesses like my protein or you know have a have a potentially much more credibility in that space than a retailer might do those could be the kind of concessions that that come into that space so yeah I think there's loads of options if we just start thinking about a, a space rather than daily counters. Simon it's been great to have you on thank you so much for joining us. Oh thank you yeah I've really enjoyed it really interesting they're interesting topics to talk about. It's been great to have you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.